Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, March 13th by me, Rob Schaff, Pastor of Discipling. Today is the 16th message in our series entitled, Acts, You'll Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. In 2004, I was a ballet dancer at Briarcrest Bible College. Don't believe me? It's true-ish, sort of. I was a worship arts student, and every year uh, the college put on this huge Christmas musical. We would have four or five showings over the course of the whole weekend, and there was like 2,000 people that came to the show each time we did it. And so lots of people, months of preparation, all hands on deck, acting, orchestras, choirs, and dancing. And I was a part of the dance troupe, and I was really bad at it. Oh, I could do the lifts just fine with my partner, and I could do the jumps, and I could memorize all the choreography, but I could not, for the life of me, do spins. And uh, I don't know if you've seen ballet or if you've seen musical theater, but there's a lot of spins in that dancing. And if you can't spin, it sort of throws everything else out of of whack because, you know, you're supposed to be at a certain point facing a certain direction, and I would always be facing the wrong direction, and uh, it was not great. I was bad at it. It was a dance failure. Now, did this bother me? No, because I didn't care if I was good at dancing, not even a little bit. I was just there because it was fun, and my friends were there too. Now, we would do the routines, and my spins would point me in the wrong direction, and all my friends would laugh, and we all thought it was hilarious, except for the director, who would then have to remind me one more time how to do it properly. And eventually, actually, the director realized that I was never going to get how to spin properly, and, uh, you know, I couldn't do the spotting with the eyes and whatnot, and, and he would say, okay... It's too late to replace you, so you just have to ham it up and make it really funny, and we'll just pretend like it's a part of the play. And that's what we did. That's what I did. It worked. It was funny. Uh, So, you know, that failure was kind of turned into a bit of a success. If I don't care about something, personally, failure, it doesn't really bother me. But when I care about something, when something is important to me, I want to be successful in it, and, and failure does bother me. In relationships, as a spouse, as a parent, as a pastor, as an artist or a musician, I want to succeed in the endeavors that I care about. And I'm willing to bet that you are the same way. Failure in areas of my life that I care about, that can really sting. And again, I'm willing to bet that you're probably the same way. How I take success or failure in my life really comes down to what I care about, doesn't it? And as a Christian, my desires are being calibrated to be towards what God desires. And that means that what I care about and what I find important to me changes and turns to be what God cares about and what is important to God. And we know what God desires. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the good news that we share. It's the good news that we bear witness to wherever we go. That's what we're learning to care about. Bringing people to Jesus because God loves people. And how we take success or failure really comes down to what we care about, doesn't it? In the summer of grade 11, I was on a Greyhound bus to summer camp, which was about 700 kilometers away from where I lived. And the bus was full, so I ended up sitting next to this random girl who was about my age. I'd never met her before in my life. And we got to talking, you know, sort of like, what are you up to this summer? Why are you on a bus? Oh, you know, going to Bible camp. Bible camp? What's that about? 
You know, so I had this chance to share with this girl a little bit about my faith. And I shared the gospel, and she had a ton of questions, and I answered as best as I could all the questions she asked. And actually, we even got to this point where she prayed the sinner's prayer and said, I want to be a Christian. Success, right? Yeah. I mean, this was the first time in my entire life that I was sharing my faith so openly on my own. It was so easily, and I made such an impact. I was stoked. I wasn't even at Bible camp yet, and already I got a chance to share my faith with somebody and have them respond positively to the love of God in their own life. It felt electric. At the end of the bus ride, we exchanged our uh, like MSN details, or maybe it was ICQ, I don't remember, one of those. And after an amazing summer at camp, I got to go home where I had a computer again, and you know I put in her information, and we instant messaged uh, with each other over the next couple of months and couple of years, and she would have questions about faith, and I would try my best to point her towards uh, Bible passages where I felt like she might be able to find some answers. But slowly, over the course of a couple of years, it seemed like she was drifting away from her decision that she had made with such passion on the bus. And the occasional instant message from me, it didn't seem to be enough to kind of keep her on the right path. Now, I don't remember her name, and I don't remember what she looked like. I just remember asking myself, what did I do wrong? Did I actually share the gospel the right way? Like, it didn't seem to stick, especially when she was so passionate about it on the bus. How could that newfound faith just dissolve after only a couple of years? Like, did I accidentally water down the gospel? Did I not share something properly? I must have done something wrong. It was a failure. Now, today we're looking at a story in Acts that speaks to some of the confusion that I felt, and I think that raises some questions as to what gospel success looks like. We're looking at Acts 17, and it goes a little bit like this. It starts this way, anyway. Paul goes to a place called Thessalonica, and he preaches the gospel, and he successfully starts this little church, and then he gets chased out of town by Jewish people who are jealous of the gospel and angry at Paul for preaching it. So he goes to another town, Berea. And when he gets to this town, Paul preaches the gospel. And the people there really eat it up. The Jewish people, they grab their scripture and they check everything that Paul says against it. They want to make sure that what he's saying is true. And they respond with amazing. They're just like, this is great. They really eat it up. But eventually, Paul gets chased out of that town too by the same people who chased him out of Thessalonica. They actually follow him to the next town when they hear what he's doing and they chase him out of there too. And so Paul finds himself escorted by some believers, hurried away from Athens, hurried away to the city of Athens, where he is instructed to wait for his friends Silas and Timothy to join him there. Now, who remembers Athens from their history of Western civilization class from high school or from college? I do. Here are some relevant highlights for us to keep in mind when it comes to the city of Athens. When we talk about the world that Jesus was born into, we often call it the Greco-Roman world. Well, my friends, if Rome is the Roman, Athens is the Greco. Athens was a Greek city-state, and it's the birthplace of Western democracy. It's the home of Western philosophy. It's the foundation of Western thought, culture, drama, art, the whole Western way of looking at life. The philosophers Socrates and Plato were Athenian, and other philosophers like Aristotle and Epicurus who were also Greek, they weren't from Athens, but they moved to Athens because Athens was the place to be. And all of them established literal schools of thought that would greatly influence the entire Western world. 
Now in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, Athens had technically been conquered by the Romans for quite a while. But it existed in this kind of special relationship with the empire of Rome. See, Athens had lost all of its political power, but it retained maybe something a bit more important. The Roman, por- the, the Roman poet Horace is quoted as saying this, Captive Greece captured her savage conquerors. In other words, Athens may have been conquered, but it retained the power that actually mattered, the cultural power. Athens was kind of a big deal. And that's the city that Paul finds himself waiting in. Paul, the evangelist who has successfully planted the seeds that start all of these other churches, and who has a well-established heart for the Gentiles, he finds himself in Athens. And there seems to be a lot that is kind of like lining up. It's kind of this anticipation. Something big is going to happen. Now, I've heard it said that your vocation is when in life, where your greatest joys meet the world's greatest need. Now, Paul's greatest joy was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, and he finds, him smel- he finds himself smack dab in Gentile culture central. He must have felt electric, ecstatic, so excited. And we pick up the story in Acts 17, 16 to 17, which reads like this. While Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul looks around the city and he sees so many idols. Well, that makes sense, honestly, because to this day, Athens has the remains of the Parthenon, which is a temple of Athena, as well as various other temples to gods and goddesses of the Greek, the Greek pantheon. And back then, you know, like if that's still today, if still today you can go and visit those sites, just imagine back then in the heyday. Even then more so, right? So Paul sees this and he's looking around and he's like, I don't know about this. And he goes to the synagogue to reason with the God-fearing people there, both Jewish people and Greek people, and to share the gospel and to preach against the idols. And when he's not at the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace to talk about the gospel with whoever happens to be there. Now remember, this is Athens, the birthplace of Western philosophy. So who are you going to find in the marketplace with nothing to do but kill time in conversation? Philosophers, of course. And that's exactly what happens. We read on. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching about the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul uh, runs into different, two different main schools of philosophy that are named here. What did they believe? There is the Epicureans. And Epicurean belief would come to be summarized like this. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, Good pleasure can be attained, and evil can be endured. They thought that death is kind of the end of our conscious existence, and that the gods really don't care about the affairs of men, so what we should do, rather than worrying ourselves too much about any of that, is achieve pleasure by avoiding wrong desires, and also by limiting good desires. So basically, your marching orders are enjoy friendship and take it easy. Now, the Stoics, they are another school of philosophy, and they kind of thought this. They valued self-sufficiency and autonomy. They lived in accordance 
to and in harmony with the rationality that they believed indwells everything from nature to our very selves. Stoics place this high value on friendship because friendship is the mutual responsibility of our being a rational citizen. So kind of sum it up, summarize it like this. Have common sense and be a good citizen. Now these philosophies might not actually seem that far off from what you see lived out today. And I think one could argue that's because those philosophies are actually pretty influential to the development of Western thought in the Western world that we currently live. But anyways, Paul is debating with some Epicureans and some Stoics about the implications of Jesus and the resurrection. And these philosophers accuse Paul of two things. First, of being a babbler. And this is meant to be an insult. The idea seems to be like a bird pecking away at a pile of seeds trying to find sustenance. Paul is pecking away at random words and thoughts trying to find a philosophy. In their ears, Paul is speaking gibberish. But then there's this second charge, preaching foreign gods. Now, preaching foreign gods is a serious charge in Athens. It's basically the same charge that led to Socrates being killed right there in Athens centuries earlier in his own city. And that's what Paul is now facing. They seem to misunderstand what Paul is preaching about first, though. They seem to think that Jesus and Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection, and I probably did not pronounce it even close to right, they think that Paul is talking about a new god and a new goddess that he would like to add to the pantheon. But also advocating that they get rid of idols. So he's kind of like, add these gods to the pantheon, but also get rid of the pantheon. Like I, we, They're like, this. you're making no sense. So the philosophers are equal parts confused, annoyed, intrigued, and threatened, and they need to get to the bottom of what Paul is saying. So we move on. Verse 19 reads like this. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Aeropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So these guys are going to get to the bottom of this. This meeting of the Aeropagus will sort it all out. Now, Aeropagus literally means the hill of Ares. Ares was the god of war in the Greek pantheon. And the Roman analog, because, you know, the Romans, they just stole all the Greek gods and gave them their own names. Uh, the Roman analog is Mars. So rather than me saying Aeropagus about a million times, because I'm probably, again, pronouncing that very wrong, we're going to call this Mars Hill. Because that's literally what it means when you kind of do some translating. Maybe you've heard the name Mars Hill before. Likely, it's because there are actually quite a few churches uh, in the United States and even in Canada that have named themselves Mars Hill as sort of a callback, a throwback to this story, what's about to happen here. But anyway, Mars Hill is where this council of Athenian bigwigs meets to sort out this type of philosophical question. It's not really a trial, but it's certainly more than a casual meeting. Because remember, Athens was sort of like the cultural gatekeeper for what philosophies were valid in Greco-Roman uh, thought and life. So Paul is undoubtedly in a hostile situation. If it goes poorly, they might even kill him like they did Socrates centuries earlier. 
But if Paul is successful in his gospel presentation, well, the gospel could really change the Greco-Roman cultural conversation. What preacher doesn't pray for an opportunity like that? And Paul seizes the opportunity. He preaches the gospel. We read on. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So far, so good. Paul meets them where they're at, right on the streets of Athens with their own altar to an unknown God. Paul clarifies that he's not talking about trying to add a couple of uh, new deities to their pantheon. The pantheon is nothing more than the, 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 Parthen the, the Parthenon, there we go, the Parthenon and the Pantheon, they are nothing more than statues made by human hands. But there is a God who's bigger than all of that. There is a God who is not made, but who is actually the maker. So Paul, he is speaking against idolatry and he's drawing them towards the true and the living God and they are tracking. He charges them to stop worshiping what is made by human hands, what is man-made, and to turn to the true and living God who wants to be found and who actually made them. This is a challenging idea for Greek thought because both the Epicureans and the Stoics, they kind of thought that God uh, or the gods care very little about humanity. And, God is say, uh, and Paul is saying, no, God actually cares a lot about humanity and that God actually wants to be found and wants to be known. But then Paul even quotes their own philosophers and their own poets to show them how these ideas shouldn't actually be brand new to them. He's quoting when he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. He's saying, guys, like, this is actually kind of in your thought, you know. You should open yourself up to that. Paul isn't babbling incoherently to these philosophers. He is skillfully meeting them where they're at, and he is speaking their language, and he's arguing, trying to help them find the truth. Paul continues, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul's saying God cares about people. And God really strongly desires for people to turn away from their ignorance. And in fact, God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And that's Jesus. And Paul doesn't actually state that's Jesus, but that's Jesus. That's what he's trying to argue for, right? And get people to. And the proof is this, that the man was risen from the dead. And Paul has lost them. Completely lost them. 
judgment for human actions, that's a kind of a novel concept considering that these Greeks didn't even believe the gods gave a rip about humanity. And resurrection was actually ruled out as a possibility in Greek thought about 500 years earlier. Not to mention that even if you're not a Greek philosopher, believing in resurrection, that's a pretty big ask. We continue to read on. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of Mars Hill, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And that is the story of Paul at Mars Hill. Paul brings the gospel to his dream stage at Athens in front of all of the Gentiles' bigwigs, right? Their cultural who's who. And some of them straight up sneer at him. And others politely dismiss him, saying, we want to hear you again on this subject, which seems okay, but it's actually more of this polite half-truth that gets Paul off of Mars Hill and out of their conversations. Paul will not be invited back to Mars Hill to speak on this any further. It's true, a handful of people come to faith, like, again, I'm going to botch this name, Dionysius, who was a member of Mars Hill, and Damaris, and mentions a number of others. But if you flip open your Bible to the table of contents, you're going to see that Paul wrote letters addressed to various churches, like Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Corinthians, Thessalonica, even Rome. But Athens is not on that list. Paul at Mars Hill is an interesting story, because Paul isn't killed like Socrates. But the gospel isn't added to the cultural conversation. Paul is merely dismissed, laughed at, and he moves on from Athens to Corinth. So here's what I would like you to think about. What did Paul do wrong in Athens? The answer? Nothing. Not a thing. Paul wanted a chance to reach the Gentiles with the gospel, and that's exactly what he did. And how he did it was quite amazing, too. He could have really botched it. He could have attacked them for their idolatry, guns blazing. He could have just said, oh, yeah, man, I think that all religion basically says the same thing, and then agreed with them on whatever they thought, abandoning all of his convictions. He could have just kept the gospel to himself and just kind of let them do their own thing, but that's not what he did. He engaged them because he really wanted to win them to Jesus. He didn't want them to remain in their ignorance. He took great pains to frame the gospel in a way that would make as much sense to them as it possibly could. He did it with a lot of care. He started with their altar to an unknown God, which was something that they would all know about. And he tied in Athenian poets and philosophers trying to speak a language that they were familiar with and deal with thinking and thoughts and, and, and conversations that they were familiar with. And he ended with the truth of the gospel, that is the resurrection. Paul also had a high degree of conviction. He did not compromise at all on the truth of the gospel. He knew that it all hinged on the resurrection of Jesus, and he said as much, knowing that the Greeks would struggle with it. It would have been tempting to keep that little resurrection tidbit until a later date, knowing that 
uh, you know, how much they really would struggle with it. But he didn't shy away because he knew that that was like the crux of the matter. Paul did everything that he could to reach the Greeks on Mars Hill with the gospel. Did they respond the way that he had hoped? No. A handful believed, but it seems like most didn't. A church didn't catch on in Athens the same way that it did other places. So Paul left Athens and he moved on. What are we to make of that? Well, in Matthew 13, 3 to 8, Jesus says this. A farmer went out to sow his seed and he was scattering the seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Another seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still others fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Often we read this parable and think, be good soil. Be good soil. As much as you can, be good soil. Be the kind of soil that when a seed lands on you, you will grow. And yes, absolutely, as Christians, we should try to be good soil. But when Jesus explains what this parable means later in Matthew 13, 18 to 23, it's clear that maybe Jesus has something a little different in mind. And I'm going to summarize that for you here. What Jesus is getting at is this. It's very possible to throw good seed on bad soil. So what do you do when the garden that you dreamed of didn't quite grow the way that you had hoped? Over the years that I've been discipling pastor here at Sardis Fellowship, I've talked quite a bit about gospel and cultural fluency. It's a pretty simple idea, and it's this. We, as Christians, need to be able to understand the gospel completely and fluently to the best of our ability, and we need to be able to understand and speak our culture's language to the best of our ability, so that we can be a translator between our gospel and between the gospel. Between our culture and the gospel. We want to reach our culture with the gospel, and it's not going to happen so long as it's two different languages that aren't speaking. But we can stand in that gap, and we can make those connections for people. And that is exactly what Paul did in Athens on Mars Hill, he's translating and speaking fluent gospel to his Greek philosophic audience. But the soil just wasn't receptive. And sometimes that's just how it goes. Paul was still faithful to preach the gospel with every shred of ability he had been given because he cared to reach them, but they just weren't open to it. Not in the way that he'd hoped. Paul continued on to Corinth where he would preach to the Gentiles. And in Corinth, the soil was fertile and a church was started among the Gentiles. Did what happened at Athens on Mars Hill, did it sting Paul? Yes, I think it did. And here's why. Because much later, Paul, when writing to the church that he founded in Corinth, he would write this. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's clear that Paul had spent quite a bit of time thinking about what had happened in Athens and what had happened in Corinth and how different the response was. But he continues. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul's efforts at Athens may not have righted the Greco-Roman ship, but for a handful of people in Athens whom God had called, it changed everything. Because Paul was scattering the seeds, and it's God who does the calling. So here are some questions I want us to think about. Do I care enough about people to reach them with the gospel? And how do I act on this? Who gets to define what success looks like in gospel endeavors or in all of life? How do I measure success? Is it the same way that God does? When I feel like my efforts fail miserably, what do I do? And when it feels like my efforts succeed, what do I do? We might not all be put in a position to preach the gospel in a high-pressure, public-speaking, TED-talking scenario where we're trying to convince the movers and shakers and our cultural gatekeepers of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. That might not be what we're all called to do. But I know all of us know people who don't know Jesus. And I know all of us live in a culture that is tricky to navigate with the gospel. I know that all of us believe who believe, all of us who believe, desire for others who don't believe to know the gospel and to have it change them, for them to come to know Jesus, all of us will be tempted to despair when how we envision that playing out in our lives doesn't quite meet exactly our expectations. I don't know what happened to that girl on that Greyhound bus all those years ago who prayed a prayer with me one day on a bus and years later slowly drifted away from faith. But I do know what happened to me. It actually became harder for me to share my faith because I internalized that discouragement and I let my doubts about my ability to properly share the gospel eat away at me because I became convinced that I must have done something wrong. It actually just ended up becoming easier and easier and easier for me to not care about strangers on buses. The end result was this. For years, I didn't really share my faith. And I didn't really care to. That whole experience, as far as I could tell, and as far as I can tell now, was only a success for the enemy who wanted the good news of Jesus to go quiet in my life. Thankfully, Paul set a better example than I did. Paul knew that his success was found not at Mars Hill. His success, or in the response to Mars Hill, his success was found in him bringing the gospel to Mars Hill because that was him being faithful to his calling. Again, in the book of Corinthians, Paul would come to write this. 
Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I've become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Let us follow the example of Paul when it comes to looking for success in our own life. Let us care so much for people that we're willing to do anything to reach them, anything short of sin. Let us faithfully live out the calling that we have received in our own lives to do our part to spread the gospel. Let us work on cultivating our own hearts to care for those who God cares about. Let us engage our culture with a high degree of compassion and conviction rather than attacking people in our culture or just agreeing with everything that our culture is about or straight up withdrawing from our culture, starting monasteries and other people uh, isolating them and not caring about them at all. Instead, let us plant seeds of the gospel to the best of our ability, trusting God with the soil that it lands on, praying that people may come to know the power of the gospel in their own lives. When we become discouraged, when it doesn't measure up the way that we are hoping it to, let us resist the urge to stop caring so that we don't get hurt. Let us resist the urge to obsess and, and beat ourselves up. Instead, let us continue to share the gospel, trusting that God is going to do something with it. When the world demands a witness to the work of God in this world, let us be the ones who speak up and who live it out. I would like to leave with the discussion questions that I read a little earlier. Maybe the reflection questions, discussion questions. I'll read them one more time. Do I care enough about people to reach them with the gospel? How do I act on this? Who gets to define what success looks like in gospel endeavors? In all of life, how do I measure success? When it feels like my efforts fail miserably, what do I do? And when it feels like my efforts succeed, what do I do? Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.